This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello there. Welcome. This is the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Peter Gowers and joining me is the brains of this operation, Mr. Leon Logan-Nathan. How are you, mate? <laughs> I thought you, I thought a better title would be Secretary of the Operation, mate. <laughs> well, I never realised until... Um, Maybe I wasn't inquisitive enough as a youngster, but I, I always used to think it was strange when uh, growing up when the the spokesperson for various unions around the country were always described as the secretary of the union. And I always thought, isn't that strange that they get the typist to come out and uh, <laughs> make the comments? And then I, then I eventually figured out the secretary was actually the boss. Yes, yes. Well, it's like being the secretary, I think, of the uh, Communist Party of China. I think uh, right. they're, they're yeah, pretty okay. high up there as well. well speaking of which, I, I would have thought uh, you'd be getting an early night this evening. This would be sort of like your New Year's Eve equivalent, wouldn't it, with the uh, the first Trump-Biden debate kicking off at the wee hours uh, tomorrow morning our time? You know what? I didn't even know that. Okay. Um, but we probably dated the podcast already and... Uh, I'm not sure when this one's coming up, but anyway. They're doing cool. three of them anyway. So, um, But, <laughs> yes, uh, Trump, Trump's taking the line that Biden is senile and yeah. uh, Biden's taking the line that how can you have this maniac run the country for another four years? So well, I guess we'll see who wins in the end. Right, right. Well, the one thing I am keeping an eye on, mate, is um, our, our um, podcast that was uh, most recently released and of course there'll be a number of podcasts that would have been released between now and uh, <laughs> and then and yeah. uh, and when this one was, comes out it was released recently recently it <laughs> is climbing up the charts like you wouldn't believe mate yeah and, and i also um i've been meaning to mention this for a while but uh we had uh, a young lady from alice springs on some time ago uh, chloe ehrlich who you know uh has just her podcast just took off and never stopped. Yes. And, uh, and then we had Tracy Hayes and, and she set off on this path of uh, trying to catch Chloe Ehrlich. Neither of them knew this, of course, but this was just in our world. And uh, as of only a few days ago, they are both now equal number one ever most listened to podcasts. Uh, but I get a sense that Mr. Turnbull may actually overtake both of them before too long. <laughs> well, he's cracked a double ton in, what, three days? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So, we'll, well, I guess we'll let people know once, uh, once and if that takes over. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, let us introduce our uh, um, listeners to our guest uh, for this podcast. He was, uh, he's someone I, I've known uh, for a while and uh, unbeknownst to me, um, his son uh, came to my place a few weeks ago and um, uh, it was part of, a, part of a larger group of people that uh, we got together uh, to watch Hamilton, uh, <laughs> one of, you know, my, one of my favourite uh, oh, yes. favorite <laughs> things to do. And... Um, uh, when I sort of uh, started speaking with him about who he was, he he connected the dots for me, and he is the the youngest son of Peter Forrest. Peter Forrest is a um, historian, uh, someone who um, is reasonably well known. Uh, certainly, he was very very well known. He and his wife were very well known uh, a number of years ago when there used to be a lift out in the NT News every I think it was once a week. Uh, mm. about the history of, of the Territory. Mm. So uh, I would like to introduce Mr. Peter Forrest. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thank you very much, Leon. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for joining us. It's, Thank you, Peter. Uh, it's nice to be with you. And I have no doubt that there's going to be some fascinating things to talk about when it comes to the NT's history. <laughs> So, uh, Peter, can you give us your background? Where were you born? Well, I was born in North Sydney, uh, but I uh, actually lived, my parents lived at the time in Western Queensland, near the town of Longreach, 40-odd uh, miles out of Longreach. They, uh, my father was a pastoralist, uh, a wool grower, 
And uh, both my father and my mother's families were old-time Western Queenslanders, been out there for several generations. And uh, that was where I had my childhood and much of my growing up and where I worked for a time. I was actually born on the 29th of July, 1941. And I mentioned that date, not to show how young I am, <laughs> but to show or how young I'll still be next birthday, but to uh, point out that the 29th of July, 1941 was a very significant date in world history. Mm. Um, it was the day when America issued an ultimatum to Japan that if they did not stop their aggression in Indochina, America would impose an oil embargo on Japan, which would bring the Japanese economy to a halt. And the Japanese uh, took this in their stride and said, don't worry about that. We will get our own oil. And their plan was to get their oil by capturing Java, which was oil rich Java and Sumatra. So they set about to implement that plan. And of course, that led uh, within a few months to Pearl Harbor and the outbreak of World War II. But the genesis of it all was on the day that I was actually born. So I can't, I can't claim to have had any agency in all of that. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, Pearl Harbor was, what, 7th of December, 1941, right? Uh, well, 8th of December if you're Australian. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Local, local seven, time. Seven, it's always written in the history books as being the 7th of December. Yeah. Right. But in fact, for us, it was the 8th. Right, right. And so tell us uh, what it was like growing up in Western Sydney near Longreach. I mean, I'm sure the Qantas Western, Museum was Western Queensland, yes. Sorry, Western Queensland, I meant. Sorry. Don't get that mixed up between Queenslanders <laughs> and New <laughs> South Wales people. Around. Exactly. <laughs> well, but, it, it was living, growing up uh, on a sheep station of 40-odd thousand acres, seven miles from our nearest neighbour and 40 miles from a town, uh, in days when communications and transport weren't, uh, were limited, particularly during the war years when, uh, you know, if you were going anywhere by car, you had to prime up the gas producer and uh, other, and you had to bear in mind that petrol was rationed and so were tyres and everything else. So mobility was extremely limited. Communication was by means of a telephone, which sometimes worked and often didn't just a single wire strung across a line of poles going 20 miles into the nearest telephone exchange. And every time it rained, it went to earth and you didn't, couldn't make calls. And there, when you were able to make a call, there was so much induction that you could barely hear anything. And if you wanted to make a trunk line call, for example, if we wanted to call our relatives in Sydney, you had to book the call two or three days in advance. You couldn't just dial up as you do now so it was isolated but at the same time uh it was a tremendously exciting and interesting environment for a child to be in uh you know i was allowed to roam freely around the bush do whatever more or less whatever i liked i was interested in all of the uh work that was going on around the station all of the people who came and went um i i didn't know any different and i thought that it was pretty good. So uh, it was uh, an interesting place to grow up until I started school. And mm. my schooling was by correspondence taught by my mother. And my mother was a very conscientious home supervisor, they were called. And uh, she uh, taught me very, very effectively uh, and sternly. Uh, there was it was always difficult to maintain my attention because there were things happening outside the schoolroom which were far more interesting, <laughs> people going mustering on out on tractors and horses, etc., etc. Uh, but um, she was pretty good at it. And when I went away to boarding school at age 10, I found that I was two years ahead of everybody else because she just taught me so effectively. Wow. Um, that two years ahead of everyone didn't last all that long, actually. I used up that credit, used up that credit fairly quickly. But um, 
it, it was a, a fascinating place in which to grow up. And uh, it was interesting because you, because you were so isolated, you more or less automatically took an interest in the outside world. You know, you wondered what was outside. Mm. And occasionally we would go on car trips down to Sydney, uh, 1,500 miles over atrocious or virtually non-existent roads and all the rest of it, and uh, through all sorts of different country and through all sorts of areas where when we were driving past them, my father would say to me, oh, well, um, Major Mitchell went there when he was exploring in this area in 1845, and this is where he stopped. And wow. I got extremely interested in that sort of thing, and I think I've been interested in history ever since. Why, so, why were the trips to Sydney, Peter, and not Brisbane from Long Beach? Oh, well, well uh, the trips to Sydney were because uh, a part of my mother's family, which we were close to, was resident in Sydney, and okay. we didn't have any connections in Brisbane at all. Okay. So uh, we went to uh, Sydney. We did, on one occasion that I vividly remember, we did fly to Sydney by Qantas from Longreach. Qantas was still operating as a domestic airline in those days, yeah. international airline, and we flew from Longreach on a series of hops to Sydney or towards Sydney. We didn't go all the way. But we flew in a DH-86 aircraft, which was a biplane, <laughs> uh, notorious as perhaps having been the most dangerously unsafe <laughs> <laughs> plane ever. But no, I'm being serious about this. Yeah. And uh, But what I remember most vividly about it was that there was a steward on the plane and he wore uh, black trousers, a white shirt and black shoes and uh, a bow tie and... Uh, had a serviette over his arm and all so he's very correct. And we all sat in cane chairs. The passengers, the chairs you sat in were were, were in effect cane lounge chairs. Wow. So that was the DH-86. Um, and, of course, Longreach was the birthplace of Qantas. Some yeah. of had a bit to do with, with helping it get off the ground. Um, aviation was a thing that we watched with great interest, took for granted. Some of the paddocks on our property were named after aviators. One was called the Jason, which was Amy Johnson's aircraft. The wow. other another paddock was called the Hinkler um, because they were flying over when things mm. were being done in the pioneering stage on the property. Mm. Wow. So uh, that was the uh, connection with Sydney and the ways and means of getting there. So could you just describe the trip from Longreach to wherever you landed near Sydney? Where did you stop along the way? Well, I think we stopped probably, I think we stopped at Charleville on the first night. And what would happen was you might, you, we might have stopped, we might have gone from Longreach to Blackall to Charleville. I can't be sure about that, but we certainly stopped overnight at Charleville and we were given accommodation at Caroni's Hotel the leading hotel in that region, quite an illustrious place, and you would be taken in there and it was a, a country hotel of the style that, you know, everyone wore ties and coats and ties to mm. dinner. It doesn't matter if it was in the middle of summer. Um, it was a comfortable and uh, very well-mannered place. Um, so you'd, you'd, you'd arrive there at about 6 o'clock in the evening and you'd be woken up at 6 o'clock the next morning, told to hurry through your breakfast, put back on the plane and you go on the next leg, <laughs> uh, which might be uh, to within reach of Sydney. And then you do the same thing again. And then due to some regulation or other, Qantas couldn't conclude these flights in Sydney. So you went to some place close by and then got a train into town. Wow. Uh, uh, and I think this, the plane was about a 12-seater from right. memory. Right. So three uh, days, effectively. Sorry? Three days from Long Three Ridge. days. Three days, that's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Did you have any siblings, Peter? Yes, I had two younger brothers. Right. <coughs> um, what, one thing I should mention about aviation in those early days was that particularly a bit later on when we had DC-3s on all those inland air routes and a plane, a famous plane, of course, and a very, a very useful plane. But 
uh, they weren't pressurized. And mm -hmm. if you had a long flight in one of them, two things were going to happen. One was that you were bound to be airsick because the planes could never get up enough height on the short hops that they did. They didn't get enough height to get above all the turbulence. So it was always rough uh, and you were always airsick. <laughs> and the other thing was that because of the lack of pressurization, people used to have terrible ear trouble. Oh, and uh, you could be deaf for days after one of these flights. Wow. Uh, just depend, seemed to depend on the individual. It didn't worry me much, but my young brother, he would be deaf for a week after one of these wow. flights. Um, so uh, we've come, we have come a long way. Yeah. Mm. And so uh, you managed to get through school um, and then... Yeah, I went away to a boarding school when I was 10. I went mm -hmm. to boarding school in Sydney. Uh, in Sydney because I could be near those relatives that we had down there. Yeah. Um, and it was a somewhat severe boarding school, modelled on 19th century English boarding schools. <laughs> uh, plenty of floggings, uh, <laughs> a complete lack of freedom, and, you know, we were only allowed out of the school gates once a term for a free weekend, and a complete lack of privacy, um, the food was um, uh, awful, it's perhaps a bit harsh, but it wasn't good. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was Spartan. Um, but um, I survived, and I think one of the reasons that I survived was that uh, having been brought up in the bush where mm. there are a few rough edges anyway, mm. I knew how to, to cope with it. But yeah. other people who had had a more sheltered childhood mm. found it very difficult which establishment was that peter it was a school called barker barker college up at hornsby okay. on the northwest side of sydney still around oh yes it's still going yeah. yes okay. yes and they've even got girls there now wow. <laughs> we, we could we could only dream you can only imagine in those days <laughs> but uh, we weren't quite sure what they were or what you might do with them but we, uh, we just knew we wanted friends. them <laughs> <laughs> but uh, nowadays it's uh, co-educational and uh, it's it's quite a uh, a notable school mm. right and uh, and after school, what did, what did you end up doing? Well, I went to university to do arts and law, and uh, um, I started out at the University of Sydney. And after a couple of years there, I uh, changed to the University of Queensland because I reckoned if I was going to um, get seriously involved in the practice of law, it would be in Queensland. So I went there, and um, I. Uh, uh, did law there, I did articles, and then I went back to Longreach in 1965 and worked for a local solicitor for three years. Wow. And that, mm. and that was wonderful because we were hundreds of miles from the nearest barrister yes. or colleague. If someone came in with a knotty problem, you had to solve it yourself. Yes. And mm. everyone who came in the door had a different problem. <laughs> so you learnt a lot very quickly. Yeah. And I really loved it. But later on, when I went back to Brisbane, I realised that you just couldn't practice law that way anymore. The law was becoming so complex that you needed to get into one of these large, deep, compartmentalised law, fir law firms. And I didn't want to do that. So I went off to do other things. What did you do? Um, well, I became director of the National Trust in Queensland um, in uh, 1971. Um, before that, though, I should mention that when I was in Longreach in that period of three years when I was working out there, in 1968, I got a scholarship, <coughs> excuse me, a Rotary scholarship to go to the United States. And... Um, it was, the year was 1968, which was the most dramatic year in modern history in the US. Uh, I arrived in America just after the Tet Offensive in the Vietnam War, which was uh, an absolutely uh, terrifying event for the Americans who realised that they perhaps weren't as invincible as they thought. Uh, it was, I arrived there also at about the time that Martin Luther King was assassinated. Oh, arrived where exactly in the US? Gee. Sorry? 
Where in the U.S. did you? Uh, upstate New York. Oh, okay. So not New York City, but upstate, yep. up the Hudson River. Uh, How far upstate? Uh, up towards uh, Hudson, around the Catskills, um, around um, West Point is one other famous landmark, and Poughkeepsie. And of course, as right. you would know, Poughkeepsie is famous as the of the home of as the home of Vassar Ladies College. Right, right, right. Which I managed to break into one day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, 1968 was uh, an exhilarating and fascinating year for me to be in the United States because I was terribly interested in politics. Uh, in Australia in the 1960s, uh, there had been bitter debate about the Vietnam War and about our involvement in Vietnam. Uh, what all of this was doing was dividing the younger generation from the older generation. And uh, this was, it was just dominating everything. And uh, of course, 1968 was also the year of a presidential election. Mm. And as it turned out, um, um, it was the year in which the, uh, the Democrats who had controlled the presidency for most of the time since 1932. They were thrown out. Richard Nixon came in and um, things were never quite the same after that. But it was... Can I just uh, pause you there? Sorry? I just want to pause you there. So Richard Nixon was the president in 68? Well, in 69 he was sworn in. 60, yeah. Right, 69. So he was the president when man landed on the moon. Uh, I think so. Yes, he yeah. was. He was. Yes. Okay. I, I didn't make that connection previously. All right. Yeah. So um, it, it was um, a turbulent time and uh, I was extraordinarily interested in it. And I got involved a little bit in the campaign. All sorts of young people that I became friendly with were signing up to support uh, Eugene McCarthy in his campaign for the presidency. He didn't make it, but he was running on an anti-Vietnam ticket. Mm. And uh, it was just amazing, all of these things that were happening. People getting assassinated, yeah. riots, um, di bitter divisions. Um, it was the most turbulent year in American recent history, without doubt. Mm. Peter, um, I have a question. And it, it's related to something you just said, but we, we had a, um, a guest on the podcast a few months ago and her father fought in the Vietnam War and we sort of made a comment at the time and I, I wonder if you could just explain to us, I've never really quite understood because it was before my time, how uh, in both the case of the US and Australia, how the governments decided to go to war with Vietnam. And then when their soldiers came home, they completely turned their backs on them. Well, why did that happen? Well, uh, we uh, need three or four podcasts. To <laughs> <laughs> I was <laughs> waiting for that. <laughs> but, Just give me uh, the cut down version. Uh, but uh, it... Uh, Vietnam was a matter that the future of Vietnam was a matter that was left unresolved at the end of World War II. It had been owned by, as a colony by the French, um, and the French dug in there and stayed there until 1955 after they were de defeated in the battle, the famous Battle of Dien Bien Phu, and uh, they were forced to withdraw. And then uh, there was an uneasy peace between the revolutionaries who didn't want the French and uh, the other interest backed by the Americans and with Australia tagging along that wanted a controlled process that might result in the establishment of a democratic regime in South Vietnam. And it was agreed that there would be a plebiscite in a number of years to determine all of that. But in the meantime, a guerrilla war was being run and it just escalated. Now, 
the American and the Australian governments actually went to war in Vietnam uh, in the 1950s um, without really telling the world about it. But in the 1960s, it came right out into the open because the Americans were losing and, uh, and the South Vietnamese, which the Americans were backing, and the Americans were having to pour more and more troops in, more and more planes for bombing and uh, just escalating the whole thing, and it could not be kept a secret. Mm. And uh, then, of course, you had the Tet Offensive that I mentioned earlier at the beginning of 1968, when the Americans and under uh, President Lyndon Baines Johnson said, oh, we're winning this war, it won't be long now. And then in the Lunar New Year of 1968, the Viet Cong, the communist uh, forces from North Vietnam, actually invaded into South Vietnam and got right into the American embassy in Saigon. Wow. And this blew out of the water any pretense that the Americans were winning. Mm. So it then became a, a quagmire of losing battles and stalemates and so on until eventually the Americans decided that they would just have to pull out, and they did, and, mm. the, and the Australians too. They glossed over it and tried to pretend that they'd won, yeah. but it wasn't the case. Mm. Now, as to your question as to why weren't um, troops returning from Vietnam treated better, um, there was so much division in the community about whether we should have been in, in Vietnam at all, mm. but I think that was one reason um there was i think some of the hostility toward the um, returning troops has been exaggerated uh but uh, i think that uh, they were uh, the government associated vietnam by this time with failure they didn't want to have big welcome home parades for all of these troops because it would remind the community of what a failure it had been, right. possibly failure. Mm. So uh, I think that those men weren't as well treated as they should have been, um, but uh, the fault lay with the government rather than the community at large. Mm. Yeah, because that was a um, that was a time when uh, Australia actually conscripted troops too, wasn't it? Oh well, it was, and this was the lottery of death. Yeah, uh, this was a part of the reason for so much opposition to it. Yeah, was, uh, people who uh, might be conscientiously opposed to the war were forced to go and fight it. Yeah, um, and of course. Uh, you know, there was increasing, what happened was that in the early years of the war, it was politically very popular, but the tide turned very quickly in 1967 and 68, and it became unpopular. Mm. Um, so uh, people weren't really holding their hands up and saying, I want to go and fight in Vietnam because we've got to win this war. It was... I think being clearly seen that we were stooges for the Americans. Mm, yeah. Mm. So it was a, a very unhappy episode in Australia's history. Yeah, absolutely. Pete, if you want to get an absolutely fantastic rundown of all of this uh, mm -hmm. and, and not have Peter uh, on, this, on the podcast for three episodes, as he says, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Ken Burns does a brilliant job of it uh, yeah. on Netflix. Okay, brilliant. Uh, and I think, what is it, about 10 episodes or something, Peter? It's, uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's certainly worth having a look at. And there have been some wonderful books written about Vietnam too. Yep. I mean, the, Vietnam is like all wars, right or wrong. There was incredible heroism, incredible achievement, incredible cowardice, incredible courage, uh, all of those things. But it's just they were all obscured and overwhelmed by the political um, awfulness of it all mm. and and the hopelessness of it. Yep. I mean, America got itself into this war and didn't know how to get out. That's yep. the basic problem. Mm. 
So Peter Forrest, 27 years old in uh, upstate New York. Tell us what happened there. Oh, well, uh, it was uh, a wonderful experience because here was this boy from the bush, mm. the back box of Western Queensland. I'm over there in New York. <laughs> and uh, the, origi the original Crocodile Dundee. Well, <laughs> uh, well heading that way, I suppose. Um uh, I had a little side trip down to the southern states of the United States, oh, right. and, which I'd always been interested in, and I'd always been particularly interested in the American Civil War. Yes. And not for this reason, but it is a fact that one of the heroes for the South in the American Civil War, and a man who was a slave trader in Memphis before the war, and after the war, he was an outstanding Confederate general, and after the war, he... Uh, founded the Ku Klux Klan. His, his name was Nathan Bedford Forrest. Yes. The same surname yes. as me. Yes. And wherever I had to go in the southern parts of the United States, they'd say to me, say, are you any relation to that guy who fought for us in the war of northern aggression? <laughs> and I uh, said, well, look, I'm not quite sure about that and, and <laughs> left that very ambiguous. But... Uh, Every door of hospitality was opened wide to me because of the prospect that I might have been related to this great hero of the southern states. Oh, wow. Of course, in 1968, they were still fighting the war down there, as yes. indeed I found out 10 years ago when I was back in the same region, they're still fighting it. Yeah. But uh, that was uh, just a wonderful experience to me, that whole 1968 thing. But anyway, I went to Brisbane became director of the National Trust there, and I found myself involved in a, in a war of a different kind, <laughs> a war with the Queensland government over the future of Queensland's heritage, particularly the heritage of the Bellevue Hotel in Brisbane. This was a famous conservation issue. Um, the Bellevue Hotel was opposite Parliament House, it had been a, a famous and popular old hotel, glorious place with cast iron balconies and so on all around it. It was being used as um, a hostel for the country members of parliament and uh, the Bjorki Peterson government decided that they'd tear it down, which in the view of the National Trust and certainly my personal view would have been and was a tragic outcome for Brisbane and for Queensland and for Australia. Uh, it was just willful vandalism. And um, But it was a, an issue that went on being argued about for four or five years, six years, and uh, I was honorary secretary and then director of the National Trust of Queensland and very much at the front of the firing line over all of this and made myself very unpopular with the Queensland government, particularly with such notables as Russell Hins, <laughs> um, who uh, and it eventually became clear that there wasn't room in Queensland for Big Russ and for me. <laughs> so uh, that precipitated my move to the Northern Territory in 19, the beginning of 1978. But um, in the meantime, I'd always had some connections with the Territory. I'd been here on a holiday trip during the university vacation in 1961 and I uh, remember vividly coming into Darwin and being pretty amazed by the place and being amazed by the uh, outstanding architecture and the sheer beauty of the Hotel Darwin. Mm. I know that uh, um, almost 40, almost 50 years later, I would be in a witness box talking about those heritage qualities of the Hotel Darwin, which, mm. again, was another tragedy when it was demolished in, I think, 1998. Um, it, um, um, and I, I also came to Darwin in 19, early 1975 in the aftermath of Cyclone Tracy. I'd been asked to do to, to by the Australian government to go to Darwin and review what had happened to historic buildings as a consequence of the cyclone. So I was up here for about five days in that amazing time just after the cyclone, 
And then again, later when I came back here to live and work, found myself being involved with the future of some of those sites that I had looked at. But um, um, I came up here in uh, 1978 to, uh, in effect, to not establish the National Trust, it was established, but to become its first director and get things moving and to argue the case for conservation of the territory's heritage, both man-made and natural, and um, away we went. And we achieved a lot in a short space of time um, in the beginning because there was a lot of community support for what the Trust was trying to do. The, the Territory was a new entity, as from 1978, a new self-governing entity, and there was a feeling that the Territory was a special place, it had its own identity, and it had its own historic sites to prove it. Mm. Uh, not that those historic sites were always um, um, conventional in their uh, appearance, and sometimes it was a bit difficult to sell the fact that they were historic, that they were there. Mm. And so that's what kept me busy for a while. At the same time, doing things like getting an oral history committee moving and uh, arguing for the establishment of a heritage council so that rational decisions about uh, conservation of the territory's heritage could be made. So I did that until the end of 1980. And um, since, since then, I've been a freelance writer and consultant operating in my, uh, on my own account uh, in partnership lately with my wife, Sheila, uh, based here in Darwin, but active throughout the Territory and in Queensland and in some parts of Southeast Asia as well. You met uh, Sheila in Darwin? Yes, I did. Sheila came from Glasgow to, uh -huh. to Darwin uh, with a view to seeing Australia. Um, she landed in Darwin <laughs> because that was, the, that was the cheapest point and most quickest point of entry. Very risky, and that one. <laughs> she, she had been a um, librarian. Uh, she, Sheila has a master's degree in history from Glasgow University, but she'd been a librarian at Inverness. And uh, when she arrived here in Darwin in 1980, um, the Department of Community Development here in the Territory was in the process of establishing a, a, a reference library. It needed experienced librarians, and Sheila walked into a job pretty well straight away. Wow. And uh, I met her in that reference library. I was that library's first client, actually, first mm. customer. And uh, I met Sheila, and uh, we uh, have been uh, happily married since 1983. And uh, as Leon mentioned earlier, we have a son, Ian, uh, who's here in Darwin with us. And uh, um, Sheila and I, Sheila managed the, ultimately got the job of managing the Northern Territory Library, which was first of all in Kavanagh Street in Darwin and then in Parliament House. She managed that for 14 years and then uh, left that to join my business in partnership with me. So, um, um, and we're still working together and uh, um, having a very uh, happy uh, personal and professional relationship. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a rare mixture to be able to do that. Well, it is. It's a wonderful thing for me because um, when I write things, every writer needs a critic, of course. Yep. And Sheila is a very good critic and she's a ruthless critic. <laughs> and uh, she says things to me that uh, I would not accept from anybody else. Uh, but because Sheila is who she is and because I respect her judgment so much, there's never an argument about it because I know that she's always right. Mm. And um, uh, it helps me greatly to get a better result with what I do. And uh, the way we work together is that... Um, I do the writing and um, a lot of interviewing and gathering of information and material. Sheila does a lot of information gathering, particularly of paper materials as well. But she also assembles photographs, looks after the 
um, graphic side of the book. She develops the concept for what a book might look like and how we will create it. And um, we have in recent years been publishing, printing and publishing our own books ourselves. And uh, Sheila takes a leading role in that. She's got a very a great flair for what a book might look like and how that particular layout might be achieved. So she brings many skills to the task that I really am glad to have. Mm. So when was it, because um, I, I mean, I recall how I first knew, came to know about you both was the Northern Territory News used to have a, a lift out. Was, was that a weekly thing or a monthly thing? Yes, it was. For 13 years, we did a two page, a double page spread. Yes. News about territory history. Yes. And we would still be very glad to be doing it, but uh, poor old Rupert, I think, was running out of money. <laughs> and uh, yep. uh, we weren't able to continue that, not on terms that suited us anyway. <laughs> uh, and uh, of course, before that, I had for 25 years been what the ABC called their resident historian. And I did uh, seemingly endless broadcasts on the ABC, an average of four or five a week, mostly wow. for many, many years. And how all that started was that when I was going to America back in uh, 1968, when the prospect of this trip loomed up, I thought, well, how am I going to fund this? And uh, the local regional correspondent for the ABC in Longreach was a friend of mine. And he said, look, I'll get you a, a job as a casual newsreader on our local radio station. So I became a casual newsreader for the ABC and it sort of went on from there. And uh, I began doing little historical items and things even when we were in Brisbane and doing that. And then when I came up here, um, the ABC welcomed those contributions from me and I did them for uh, quite a long time, uh, as I say, about 25 years. And and um, at the same time, I was doing the NT News features. The NT News features continued for rather longer than did the ABC features, but uh, we don't... Uh, those things are terribly demanding and not very rewarding, and I just reached the point where we couldn't keep them going for what we're getting out of them, which was uneconomic. So... Uh, we uh, don't do that anymore and we regret it because um, so many people come to us and ask us, why don't we do it and couldn't mm. we please start again? Mm. We'd love to be able to do that, but uh, we can't. Um, but uh, we are active in the same areas and other ways. We're writing books and uh, we get involved in little film production uh, enterprises, uh, and all that sort of thing. We we do displays. We've just done a major display relating to the bombing of Darwin, and that's uh, been it's an outdoor interpretive display, which is installed on the fencing at the back of the cenotaph, and there are seven large interpretive panels there, which we did, which tell the story of the bombing of Darwin why the bombing of Darwin, what it was all about, and what its effect was. So we do do those sorts of things. And, you know, my whole objective in my professional life in that area has been to, as I say, take history off the shelf, mm. try and package and present history in a way that's accessible to and interesting and attractive to ordinary people, mm. uh, get people interested and give them access to it. So uh, that's what we try to do. Well, I think it's very, very commendable, um, Peter, because I think history is one of those subjects. I'm very, very pleased to know uh, to note that my uh, children are learning history uh, at the school that they're in, and it's compulsory. Uh, it certainly wasn't compulsory when I was uh, going through school, uh, unless you did it as part of you know social studies. Yeah, um, but I just uh, I think it's a very very important subject. I I put it up there with maths and science. To be quite honest with you, oh, quite so, quite so. Yeah. And uh, um, it's a great shame that history in 
recent decades has slipped through the cracks, um, it still isn't given the priority in the school system that it should be, um, particularly Australian history. And uh, I, I think it's appalling that children are going to school here in Darwin and don't know anything about the bombing of Darwin, for example, or any mm. other of the multitude of things that they should mm. know about. Mm. Uh, some schools are teaching it, but, but not all. Did you write any books about the bombing of Darwin, Peter? Oh, yes, yes, I have written books about that. Okay. Um, and two or three, I think, from, yeah. But, but um, uh, and I'd like to write another one, but, uh, um, you know, there are many subjects that I uh, uh, would like to write books about, and uh, yeah. it's a matter of practicalities. But uh, as I think I mentioned to you earlier, Leon, uh, we have just recently been approached to do what I think is going to be a terribly exciting project, which is to write a biography of the late John Hargrave. Now, many people listening to this will know that John Hargrave was an incredible man, a saintly man, came to the Territory in 1956, and soon after that took it on as his personal mission to reform the medical treatment and public health uh, regime applying to leprosy in the Northern Territory, which was then quite widespread and a serious problem. And I won't go into all of the detail now, but John Hargrave was heroically responsible for conquering leprosy in the Territory uh, and taking the fear out of that dreadful disease. He was responsible for uh, achieving the treatment of leprosy in the community rather than in confinement, uh, virtual imprisonment for life. And uh, he's a man who has contributed so much to our society. It's just going to be a wonderful thing to put his contribution on the record. When he finished his wonderful work here in the Territory, he then went and started again over in Timor. Uh, he was a great humanitarian. And uh, it's very early days for this yet, but John unfortunately died a couple of months ago. Uh, and a group of people his friends from throughout Australia, some external to Australia, um, have got together and uh, came to us and said, well, would you take on the task of putting this biography together? So we're delighted to be able to do that. That's fantastic. I, I must admit, I, I don't, I mean, the name sounds familiar, but I don't actually recall. Uh, well, this is, uh, this is the point. Uh, he was a very self-effacing, modest man never promoted himself during his lifetime and uh, it, it his was a life that needs to be known about mm. uh, have you um, look I, I really would like to talk to you about the bombing of darwin because I, i'll tell you one thing uh, peter every time i've had an american guest come to uh, darwin and we talk to them about the bombing of darwin they are just completely incredulous because they had no idea. Now, can you tell us, for example, uh, uh, my understanding of it was it's, it, it happened about, was it six months after uh, Pearl Harbor? Is that right? No, two months. Two Pearl months. Two Pearl, months Harbor, after. Pearl Harbor was on the 8th of December, yeah. and, uh, or 41, yeah. and uh, the bombing was the 19th of February, 42. 19th of February. And that, of course, 42. was only the first two air raids of yes. 64 air raids on mm. the Darwin area over a period of 18 months. But It must have been traumatic then. Well, it, it was traumatic, certainly, because 236 people were killed on that first day, um, including 88 Americans on just on one ship, mm. um, the Peary. So um, it, it was one of the most dramatic and tragic events ever in Australian history. I mean, it's it's the it was the first time that war actually came to Australia, Australian soil, and uh, it just had such dramatic consequences. Darwin was virtually destroyed, and uh, it uh, it was uh, um, just so destructive and costly in terms of life. But um, it did, I mean, it, 
you've got to understand about the bombing of Darwin, it, it was an event that was going to happen for about the previous 25 years because it was, uh, well, not perhaps 25 years, but at least 15 years. Um, it, uh, Darwin was being developed as a defence outpost from about 1925 when a decision was taken to make Darwin an oil supply depot for the navies that might be active in this area in the event that Britain ever lost control of Singapore. And uh, there is a lot of talk about how Darwin was going to be protected by the great bastion, the fortress at Singapore, and how the mm. British let us down and all the rest of it. That Singapore was only ever, ever a charade. It was never going to protect anybody. It was, it was just appallingly badly designed and never adequately resourced. So the attack on Darwin more or less became inevitable when Japan made a determined effort to catch, capture Java. It realized that the most likely point of resistance was from Darwin, the nearest securely held allied territory. So the Japanese evolved the strategy of capturing Java, but first capturing Timor so that it could pr protect the flanks of Java. And before that, uh, destroying the offensive capacity of Darwin so that it could be safe on its southern flank. So Darwin was always going to cop it. And that's indeed what happened. Um, and it, it was just a uh, incredibly uh, dramatic and tragic series of events. But uh, um, it um, there is always a uh, suggestion that the that Darwin is characterised by cowardice and people running away on that day, not doing their duty and all the rest of it. Uh, not really so. Um, it, and this is what I've endeavoured to show in my work, that there were people who, here who performed with conspicuous gallantry and efficiency and people who just did their job. And the events of that day are just amazing. I mean, compared with what was happening in places like Britain at the time when thousands of people were dying in a night due to air raids, it was small stuff, but this was Australia, and uh, it uh, shocked the nation. If they knew that this was going to happen for 15 years, why didn't they, like... They didn't want to spend the money, Leon. <laughs> right. um, it, it was... The Allies, Australia included, and Australia in particular, had been through World War I, where the losses were horrendous, we lost, Australia lost more men in World War I than we did in World War II, and it was horrendously costly financially. And after that war ended, neither the political leaders in this country nor the community were really prepared to put significant resources back into the defence that the country needed, even though it was conspicuously obvious from about 1933, that Japan was going to become an aggressor in Asia, and it proved that when, first of all, it attacked in China and then began moving through Southeast Asia. So anyone with their eyes open could see what was going to happen, but the government said, oh, don't worry about it, we're protected by Singapore. <laughs> well, wow. that, of course, was never realistic. Mm. Nor is it realistic, of course, to say that we were betrayed by the British in Singapore because we weren't. We were betrayed by our own um, lack of courage to do anything about it in the 1930s when we should have. So, so fast forward now to, uh, to 2020. Uh, Darwin is here. We've got the port that's leased, leased to the Chinese. 
We've got the Americans also here going through their rotation every year. <laughs> um, do you feel like history is kind of uh, repeating in some uh, sort of contorted way? I don't think it's contorted. I think it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, fairly, it's fairly straightforward, isn't it? Um, well, it's not the Japanese is what I meant. Well, uh, you know, I think that a lot of things are happening again, put it that way, Leon. And I think that there are patterns in history which are recurring. Um, and uh, I think we need to acknowledge that uh, were there to be hostilities in uh, Southeast Asia, for example, uh, we would need to be, in my opinion, uh, much better prepared than we are now. Uh, I think perhaps I'd better leave it at that because I don't want to be uh, controversial, but at the same time, I I don't think that that we should have any grounds for being terribly comfortable about our strategic situation. I think we are very exposed, and uh, if the strategic situation deteriorates, I think we'll be extremely vulnerable. I hope, sincerely hope I'm wrong, but uh, it seems to me that uh, that's the logical conclusion you're forced to. So what's the, without pushing you for controversy, what's the worst case scenario? <laughs> the worst case scenario might be, the, well, the 19th of February 2025. Oh, God. The bombing of Darwin all over again. Right. I don't want to be facetious about that, but I mean, I think that um, the worst case scenario uh, might involve uh, Darwin and the surrounding region in hostilities. Um, I think we might have learned a few lessons from last time. I think we would take better steps to get our civilians out of the way, for example. Mm. But um, I... Uh, I, I just don't uh, think that, uh, um, I mean, Darwin is a security blanket for the rest of Australia uh, in defence terms. We, defence resources are put here to make people in the rest of Australia feel that they can sleep warmly and comfortably at night, secure in the knowledge that there are people up in Darwin defending us. Mm. Well, <laughs> I've been down Mitchell Street at midnight on a Saturday and let me tell you, I think they're asleep at the wheel sometimes. Yes, so um, I, um, I uh, do think that we need to really seriously reconsider where all of this stands. Not that I'm necessarily advocating a great increase in defence expenditure, but I think we need to reallocate um, the resources that we are spending on defence at the moment. I really seriously do question why we have to pour what seems to be an, an endless amount of money into submarines uh, when uh, we might be spending that money in some other, or some of that money in some other ways. Mm. Mm. Well, wiser minds than mine are addressing these problems. And <laughs> Conclusion, so I'm obviously wrong. Well, well, the question is, are they wiser minds? Because, uh, you know, when, when we heard the other day that uh, the, the leasing of the port was simply rubber stamped by the supposed wiser minds, that, that <laughs> leads, me to, leads me to question whether, in fact, they are doing their job or not. Yeah. Yeah. But it's always interesting talking to a historian about current issues because... You know, you, you draw on your uh, obviously, uh, you know, well-read, uh, well, um, experience, I guess, uh, about what's happened in the past and try to draw conclusions. And it has all happened before, Leon. Exactly. Exactly. Invariably, it's happened before. Exactly, exactly. So, um, look, Peter, it's just been a marvellous uh uh, experience having you on the podcast. Uh, I, I enjoy talking to historians, uh, and I think uh, you you uh, add richly to the um, 
to society in terms of, of your knowledge, your experience. And so I thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. And um, I look forward to reading the book on John Hargraves. Thank you very much indeed, Leon. Thank you for inviting me on your program. And thank you to Peter. I'm very grateful. That was Peter Forrest on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms. The Territory Story podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.